Welcome to the Zero Waste Code podcast, brought to you by Green Code. We are a tech startup based out in Cornwall, and it is our mission to reduce food waste in the hospitality and food service sector. In today's episode, Ruth Westcott, campaign coordinator for Sustainable Fish Cities, talks to Green Code about sustainable fishing, Brexit, and the controversial Netflix documentary, Seaspiracy. Next, we speak to CEO Taryn Gore of intelligent recipe and menu solution company, Cafoodle, about how they help restaurants to adapt to COVID and comply with Natasha's law. Finally, Josiah Meldrum from Hobnododds talks to us about their passion for sustainable and indigenous grain farming in the UK. First up, here's Ruth Westcott from Sustain. Fab, so welcome to Zero Waste Code. Would you like to introduce yourself and some of the work you do? Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I'm Ruth Westcott and I work for Sustain, the Alliance for Better Food and Farming. And I coordinate a campaign called Sustainable Fish Cities. Great. So can you tell us why you started the campaign Sustainable Fish Cities? What what was the inspiration behind it? Well, we actually started the campaign way back in the run up to the 2012 Olympics, which feels like an awful long time ago now. But um, we really wanted to use the that, uh, that occasion, that moment in time to set a kind of precedent for what a sustainable fish in a catering setting would look like. And so we set about trying to get the Olympics to agree to have sustainable fish on their uh, on the menus for the guests and the athletes. And then we used that kind of hook of the Olympics to try and get as many other places in the run-up to the Olympics to sign up to the same sustainable fish standards with the kind of ambition of making London the world's first sustainable fish city. So we shamelessly used the association with the Olympics. Um, But I think often when you're campaigning or you're looking at ways to start to change models and behavior having that like moment in time that you can use as an opportunity is very helpful and really important to just get people behind um a specific campaign like that but of course since 2012 we've expanded from london and there are now um 16 communities in, up across the uk that are aiming to um work across the food service sector to get um sustainable fish be- to become the norm Amazing. Yeah. So obviously you're all into sustainable fishing, sustainable in our oceans. What is the biggest issue facing our marine population? So is it climate change, plastic pollution or unsustainable fishing? That's a really that's a really good question. And I think we I mean, ultimately, they're all linked. Right. So it's all about the way that we've sort of treated the oceans as being a bit kind of out of sight and out of mind and therefore just not considered the impact that humans have on the oceans in the same way that we do on land. I mean, ultimately, by far the biggest impact is unsustainable fishing. And, um, you know, there's, I'm one of the sort of sustainable fishing NGOs that, you know, really think what what the um, what has been learned about plastic in the last few years and the concentration on plastic has been great to see, but that shouldn't come at the expense of really understanding and acknowledging that fishing overwhelmingly is the biggest impact on our marine environments globally. 
Yeah. Okay. So speaking of unsustainable fishing, the number one thing people think of now when we talk about fishing is probably the Netflix documentary Sea Spiracy, which came out um, yeah, during lockdown, which was controversial and shocking to many. In your experience, how much do you think was true in that documentary? Yeah, quite right. You know, this has been a huge shake-up for um for everybody that eats fish and a huge and a big and a big shake-up for the industry, the documentary. Um certainly it got a lot right as far as I'm concerned. Um it really nailed that fact that there's we've had been preoccupied with the impact of plastics on the ocean and not enough about the impact of fishing and fish farming. Um, and also I thought what it did very well was was consider the the root cause of the problem being that the power in the fishing industry like in so many industries and particularly in food are concentrated in too many hands and the um, people who should have access to fishing resources and fishing rights coastal communities local people who've relied on fishing for generations don't have the rights to fish and the access to use those resources in a way which has traditionally been much more sustainable. So I thought it got that very right. Um, and yeah, I think like everybody, I was really shocked to see um, much of the footage. However, I think one of the things that it, 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 I would hope that, you know, if there was a sequel to Seaspiracy or something that could come after it, that would be to look at the, the fact that the fishing industry is actually very, is very complex. There is a range of different fisheries and a range of different fishing activities all the way from the very large trawling vessels that we saw in sea spiracy down to small and very low impact and um, fishing coastal um, communities that rely on fishing for their income and are actually um, fishing in a way which is low impact and very sustainable and actually when you consider the impact of all food growing on the environment it's delivering protein in a way which is actually remarkably low impact on the environment where you don't have much impact on the seafloor um you, you know we're not using pesticides and herbicides and water actually compared to other forms of farming sustainable fishing can be very low impact and deliver very good um incomes and and livelihoods for coastal communities across the world and sustainable sources of protein so so you're saying we can still eat fish sustainably um so is it better to just have a fish-free diet or can we still eat fish with you know pretty much no impact i mean i think this is this is where we have to come back like take a step back right and think about the fact that food everything that we eat has some impact on the environment and you know you talk a lot about this on the podcast about how you know everything that we do has some impact and we have to for one thing consider that we're not we're looking at minimizing the impact and actually trying to think of the impact that we do have on the on the environment as whether or not our actions can what the, you know the choices that we can make can actually benefit coastal communities and try to have as little impact as possible compared to an alternative that might be much worse. So I still eat fish. Um, I think that actually the way that we can make our choices around eating fish can be used to support communities that um, in a way that is much better than buying food 
through large supply chains that are um, that are holding the power in a way which doesn't benefit producers and local communities. So, for example, buying fish that's sustainably sourced and using the Marine Conservation Society Good Fish Guide to be able to check that the stock is in good shape and that the impact on the environment is minimal. And then buying from from supply chains that keep money in coastal communities. So look for box schemes, look for direct to fishermen um, buying options. Um, there's a really good one in London called Soul Share and another one called Soul of Discretion, which buys directly from the boats in Plymouth. And there's another really good um, online platform which anyone can access called Pesky Fish, which is basically putting as much of the pound from the fish directly in the hands of the fishermen as possible. And all these models actually, you know, when you look at alternative ways of buying fish and buy it sustainably, actually your actions can help to disrupt that incredibly unequal power system that has created many of the environmental problems that we see in fishing and across the food system as a whole. Yeah, so speaking of, you know, supporting our local, you know, UK fishermen, we spoke to the Marine Conservation Society about what the Brexit deal meant for our fishermen. Obviously, that was something that was very sort of um, contentious during the referendum. Um, a lot of people wanted to support our fishermen, um, but it was too early on in negotiations to really say what the Brexit deal meant for our fishermen. It's been sort of a year now since we spoke to the Marine Conservation Society. Are you able to shed any light on what the Brexit deal does mean for UK fishermen? Wow, what a year. Well, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to, it's hard to summarise quickly how far away from what was promised to fishermen has actually been delivered. Um, firstly, they, the promises from government amounted to what they called a sea of opportunity and a windfall of quota, which was basically that, that the UK would be able to win more access to the shared stocks in EU water. And, you know, I mean, some ridiculous numbers were thrown around, but um, what the government has claimed to have achieved is a 25% increase in quota for UK boats. Um, that is sounds a lot better than the reality. What the, what the reality is, is 25% in five years phased in, and it amounts to about 10% this year to increase on, over time. And on the, on the surface, you know, that feels like a little bit of a win, but actually when you look at the, the types of fish which have been won, it's, it's species which are low value and of very little benefit to the coastal communities that really deserved something from this deal and were promised something because they tend to be species that are caught by larger boats that fish offshore and disproportionately land their catch in overseas um, markets. So actually have negligible benefits for the local processing and transport and sales industry in the UK. It's species like horse mackerel and sprats, which we just don't have much of a market for in the UK. Um, you know, if, I suppose if, if, if what had been won was cod and you know, the species that we really value, it, it might have been a bit better, but they haven't even got, you know, even the 8% has not come from species that are useful to the, um, to the to coastal fishermen in the UK. I mean, one thing that the government could have done to sort of uh, make up for it was to rebalance the way that our, that the quota that we have for the UK is shared out between our own fishermen. So, you know, we could have had a process of 
drawing down some of the quota from the big boats to the small boats to offer more opportunities to coastal communities that offer more jobs per fish and can be rewarded for fishing sustainably. You know, that could have been an outcome that would have been really positive for the industry, but the government have chosen not to do that. Um, and for me, I think that now we haven't got the Brexit deal that we were promised. All eyes are on the government now. It's up to them to use their power to make the future of our industry more sustainable from, you know, redistributing quota in a fairer way, but also really concentrating properly on rebuilding the depleted fish stocks around the coast of the UK. So um, the, the crazy situation is that most of the fisheries around the coast of the UK could deliver much higher catches if they were if the stocks themselves were allowed to rebuild. Um, and I think now's the time for government to take that seriously. There's a, you know, the COVID-19 and Brexit have meant that we've got a pause in demand for UK fish and we should be supporting the industry to actually fish less in the short term so that the stocks can recover and catches can be much higher in the longer term. It's the kind of model which is used regularly for farmers in the UK, where we support through government subsidies and funding the protection of ecosystems and the protection of hedgerows and the kind of farming which benefits nature and the environment because we all benefit. And we need to see that kind of model adopted for the oceans as well so that we can support fishermen to fish less in the short term and let stocks recover. So, yeah, a lot of the fish we you know, used to enjoy has been... Um imported exported how is post-brexit going to affect that yeah that's right so a lot of the fish that we actually catch around the coast of the uk is exported and the main market for the fish is the eu so anything which makes trade with the eu more difficult really hits the industry hard and unfortunately the brexit deal um has meant an increase in paperwork for the fishing industry, which it doesn't sound too bad. You know, everyone has to do paperwork and perhaps this is just teething problems, but it is much more complicated actually in reality than that because um, shipments of fish need to get veterinary checks and they need to be, they need, there's a series of, and there aren't enough vets and we, you know, we're facing short, facing horrible delays in being able to export fish to the EU. And of course, when you're dealing with a, um, a fresh product like fish, and in some cases, a live product like live shellfish and live langoustine, any delay in export effectively damages the quality of the produce and shortens the distance that you can export while the produce can still be fresh or live. So the delay has effectively shrunk the distance that fishermen can export to and therefore reduce the market. And of course, it's also, you know, about the reputation of great British seafood, you know, if the quality drops and we start to be become unreliable at exporting. That really affects um, buyers and it, it damages the UK's reputation for being a great seafood exporter. And all of that has an impact on the price of fish and the size of the market that we have in the EU. Absolutely. So how can consumers support UK fishermen? You mentioned, you know, how we can support sustainable fishing. How can we support, you know, our local fishermen? What can we do as consumers? Well, actually, there's an awful lot that consumers can do, especially and it's got a lot better and a lot easier, actually, since COVID. So if there's any positive outcome from this awful last 18 months, then it's that many more fisheries and businesses in the industry have shifted to online buying and um, 
and opportunities that cut out the, you know, the supermarket supply chains and allow much more of the value of the catch to go back to the fishermen. So that's the first thing that consumers can do. I mean, it's also normally not very good value and much, much better fish. So you can enjoy just better quality, delicious, locally caught fish through a box scheme that will deliver to your door. Um, you know, and when fish is that good and that fresh, you don't need to do much else to it to have a delicious meal. Even if you're not a very good cook like me, it's just very easy to cook and a really a real treat. So I would encourage people to do that. Um, and of course, when you're choosing the fish, look for the Marine Stewardship Council logo or use the Marine Conservation Society Good Fish Guide to make sure that the species that you're choosing are in good shape. But I, I think also let's think about eating out as well, because as, as restaurants are reopening, um, for me, restaurants give a really great opportunity to try different species that you might not be used to and might be nervous about cooking at home. And you have that connection where the person literally in the next room has chosen the fish for you and has that connection with the producer, which you don't get in supermarkets. So um, let's start asking questions when we out, choosing fish um, that is sustainable and trying some different species and really encourage uh, restaurants and caterers as they start to reopen to think seriously about sustainable, having sustainable fish on the menu. Um, and I should say, of course, that this eating fish recommendation comes with the caveat that fish should be enjoyed rarely. It is a lesser better approach that we should take to eating all kinds of meat and dairy. And really, we should be um, putting vegetables and non-meat protein at the heart of our meals and enjoying meat rarely and making sure that when we do enjoy it, it comes from a better source. Absolutely. Yeah. Good advice there. So, yeah, finally, if our listeners would like any more advice or find out more about your campaign and get involved, where can they find you? Yeah, please do hit us up. So follow us on Twitter. We're at Fish Cities. Um, you can also head over to the website, uh, which is um, sustainweb.org slash fish cities. And actually, if you just Google it, um, it's the top result. So you can just find us there. Um, or email me on reef at sustainweb.org. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks. Amazing. Yeah, well, thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom and for coming on the podcast. This has been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Next up, here's Cafoodle CEO, Taryn Gore. Fab. So, welcome to Zero Waste Code. Would you like to introduce yourself and your company, Cafoodle? I'm Taryn Gore. I am the co-founder of a company called Kafoodle, and we are a food tech company um, that is all about food. Uh, so we work on creating food information for commercial kitchens and then communicating that out uh, to diners, mainly in the education, healthcare and hospitality space. Great. Yeah. So where did Kafoodle begin? What was the inspiration to start the business? Uh, so I've been in hospitality my whole life. I pretty much grew up in hotels and started as a kitchen porter when I was about 16. Um, and my co-founder at the time um, was a technologist uh, who her husband had a severe food allergy. So uh, her and I had become friends. Um, and when we saw the EU legislation coming out about food allergens, uh, she was very passionate about how could we tell customers um, and diners what's safe for them to eat? Um, where I was a bit more realistic about um, how could we get that data off of commercial kitchens when most of them used Excel spreadsheets and pen and paper. 
So thus the idea of Cofoodle came about, which is just a very easy to use B2B software that kind of mimics what Microsoft Word, pen and paper and Excel would do, but has a bit more intelligence and obviously the automation of tech behind it. So what's the sort of vision you have for Cofoodle? You know, what, what is it already of, you know, the purpose that which you've talked about just a little bit there, but what is the overall sort of vision for Cofoodle? So we want to be all about food with the outcome to improve human health. Um, so that's kind of a very abstract vision, but we believe that it'll be easier for the world and specifically the UK and children to become much healthier if they have food information available at the touch of a button. Uh, and to do that, we need to get as many chefs and as many businesses onto the software, able to easily generate the nutrition, the micronutrition, the allergens, and of course, for the, for the business, their costs and all the things that help a kitchen run effectively. But most importantly, use all the disparate and the lots of different food information that comes in, streamline it and make sure that it can be outputted to different platforms, whether that be a delivery platform, the restaurant's own website or into a care home to make sure that people can easily see what are the best and healthiest choices for them. Um, and, and that's pretty much our, our vision is that if we can make food information simpler and people can be steered by the touch of a button with having something easily accessible, then naturally you'll start to make healthier choices. And we've specifically seen that in, in secondary schools. Great. Yeah. So obviously you're doing a lot of, you know, good things, especially with allergens, but do Cofoodle take an interest in sustainability at all? Yes. So one of the things we've just added into our data is um, how sustainable is the ingredient. And also we're working with a fantastic company around um, carbon footprint. So we, we do both. And I think the big thing for sustainability for us is, especially when businesses are starting, is having the, the pricing and the costing of ingredients and understanding, obviously, a more seasonal ingredient is generally going to be cheaper uh, and is easier to use. So we do allow you or will be allowing you to further track sustainability and carbon footprint that you can actually say, this, this recipe has these sustainable ingredients and actually this product as a whole has this carbon footprint, which is quite exciting. Fantastic, yeah. So how does Cofoodle help restaurants during and even after COVID with your digital solutions? Obviously now we're coming into this world where we order on our mobiles. How, how does Cofoodle help with that? So in, in two ways, we naturally have our own product that allows restaurants to pre-order and uh, to have a system that allows you to pre-order and pay click and collect delivery we do room service for hotels and there's basically a a web-based so what we call a web-based app which is a website or an app that means a customer can come in scan a qr code put in if they have any dietary preferences or they can just order food add it to a basket and pay for it um, however i think the main way that we're actually helping is that we are agnostic so we very much are software that sits in a kitchen and we have an api where that data can be sent to any ordering app so the main reason the main thing we want to obviously do is make sure that when someone is ordering and paying for something, as you say, from their table, which is the new normal, um, that they're still able to access accurate and correct food information through whatever company or device they're using. We're just passionate about making sure that the information is captured in the kitchen and then sent correctly out to these, these different devices, whether it's a proprietary app with loyalty or whether it's just the restaurant's website. 
Amazing. Yeah. So obviously we've um, talked a little bit about allergens, obviously your business partner at the start with um, allergies. Can you tell us a bit about Natasha's Law, which you're obviously very passionate about and how your company can help businesses get ready to comply with the law? Sure. So Natasha's Law, as we all know, is, is coming out in October 2021. I think um, speaking candidly that there's a lot of uh, hype around it. Um, a lot of obviously businesses will not need to comply with it. So it is very much around your know, pre-package for direct sale. Um, so that doesn't mean for a pub, oh, someone's ordered my roast lamb, I need to label it. It is a case of if you uh, wrap up sandwiches on a Monday and someone comes in and buys a chicken sandwich that you've already packaged, that is obviously the pre-packaged part of it. So I think it's very important for businesses to know whether they need to comply or not before having a knee-jerk reaction. And then I think where Cthulhu, um sits is we've tried to make it as easy as possible. So we are a recipe kitchen management system. If your recipe is already in Cafudo, then we will take that data, data, sorry, and auto-generate an Natasha's Law compliant label for you. And we can also do that with front of pack and back of pack labeling as well, should you need it. And I think where we want to support on that is it is just a recipe that the chef would normally type up and then they can choose to do a Natasha's Law compliant label. And the reason why we really wanted, I really wanted to do this um, ages ago in front of pack labeling um, was a legal requirement is the fact that I really do think a lot of businesses coming out of COVID need to innovate. Um, and that might not only be relying on people coming in and sitting down inside. Um, there are a lot of pubs, for instance, in the city of London or you know, even um, on the way to work in the morning when, when you live in the countryside where you, you might want to grab a takeaway sandwich or a takeaway pie. And I think it might be a way for businesses to generate extra income. But as we saw with the allergen legislation, a lot of businesses might just be overly wary of this this unknown food labeling law that's coming out. And it's not that hard to comply is, is my main message. If you're writing up recipes, it is easy to comply with Natasha's law. You just need to know what's in your food, which a lot of the fantastic restaurants and pubs you work with and cafes know already. Fantastic, yeah. So currently you're measuring your social impact as a company. What sort of an impact are you expecting to make? So we generally want to, I mean, the huge vision is that we'll have an impact on the way people eat. And that because of that, we'll have an impact on human health. Now that is very, very hard to measure. So when we break that down, we obviously look at the social impact we have in schools. You know, how many, how many times does a child make a, a healthy decision because they can easily see the traffic light system of the difference between the chocolate brownie and the chopped up apple. Um, and that's much easier to track. And, and in care homes, it's, it's really interesting with the social impact because it's, it's tracking the effect of nutrition on frailty and on mind and on agile living, as we call it, and living longer. So we really want to have a really big impact on later life, um, especially with the rise of dementia, ensuring that people get um, really good nutrition. And then I think one of the, the, the social impacts that we've tracked that I was quite new to tracking impact, so I found quite interesting, but I suppose in hindsight, incredibly obvious, is the impact it actually has on chefs in schools, in restaurants, and in care homes, knowing that they are doing the best they can to make their food transparent so that, you know, there's nothing worse for as a chef putting someone in danger, whether it's through food poisoning or allergens or anything, 
you, you want to do your best. And I think the, the mental health impact it has on people cooking in schools, having a software that backs them up and, and helps them see the allergens and helps them see what they need to see, that has quite a big impact on them, um, no matter whether it's a care home, a school, or even in a restaurant, because you know you did everything right and you can see it transparently. It kind of just takes that extra weight off of them. And that's obviously taken a step further in, in care homes or when people are caring for someone that they can digitally see what the best options are for someone. Uh, it makes their job better. So I think that's quite interesting to me is the actual impact on people using our software from the business side and how it kind of takes that stress off of their, their everyday lives has been fantastic to see. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So finally, um, where can our listeners find out more about Cafoodle and get in touch if they'd like more information? So please do visit our website. It's cafoodle.com. And there's quite a lot of information on that. Otherwise, um, you can reach out to us directly. Um, it's my email address is my name. So it's Taryn um, at cafoodle.com. And we'll be happy to answer any questions you have. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Last but not least, here's Josiah Meldrum from Hodme Dodds. So, welcome to Zero Waste Code. Would you like to introduce yourself and your business? Uh, hello, yes. Uh, my name is Josiah Meldrum, and um, along with uh, two friends, I'm the co-founder of a business called Hodme Dodd. Uh, and we supply British-grown pulses, grains and seeds to, what, uh, to households, but also to independent retailers and the hospitality sector. Fantastic. So can you talk us through your journey at Hobmidod from founding the company, however many years ago that was, um, to the Great British Bean Project, to winning Best Food Producer in the BBC Food and Farming Awards? Yeah, certainly. Yeah, it does seem like many years now. <laughs> you say that, I look back at the goodness. Yes, it's, it's, it's 12 or 13 years, really, since we began... Um, working with a community group called Transition City Norwich. Um, and myself, Nick Saltmarsh and William Hudson, who went on to found Hodmedod, were at that time working for a small um, non-profit called East Anglia Food Link. And we'd spent uh, probably a decade or so looking at um, sustainable food systems in our part of East Anglia. So we'd worked with school and hospital catering. We had worked with community groups that wanted to grow their own food. We'd worked with farmers who were looking to um, do things with their, their supply chain to improve both what was happening on farm and through that value chain, but also uh, to communicate what they were already doing. And Transition City Norwich, which was a community group, part of the Transition Network, which I'm sure you've come across, um, really interested in understanding the impact of the food system in their locality and what sort of changes might need to be made to make that system more sustainable and resilient for a small city the size of Norwich. And they asked us to help them answer the question, could Norwich feed itself? And if so, how would it have to change uh, the way land was used and the way um, and, and what people ate, how diets were were made up and it's a really interesting kind of thought experiment and we you know we looked at uh, what was grown where what could be grown how many calories people need what micro and macronutrients are required uh, and we produced a report which essentially said that Norwich could feed itself from actually a surprisingly small area um, and that East Anglia and Norfolk in particular could continue 
to maintain its commitment to feeding other parts of the UK, cities like Norwich and, sorry, London and Birmingham and Manchester and, and other parts of the world even. Uh, but then in order to do that, diets would have to change fairly significantly. And that would mean um, eating less meat, but probably better meat, more extensively produced meat that form, from livestock that form part of a more sustainable rotation. But that we'd have to eat a lot more um, plant protein, essentially, partly because it's incredibly nutritious, but also because it would be really critical to these new, more sort of climate friendly, if you want, more resilient production approaches where we'd need to get nitrogen fixing crops into the rotation uh, to reduce the need for synthetic fertilizers. Um, and Transition Norwich were, as you can imagine, they were really excited about this idea and, and they wanted to see whether there are any sort of practical applications, whether things that we could do immediately to demonstrate what this new system might look like. And we were really excited and helped them to establish a community supported agriculture scheme on the edge of the city. So this is back in 2009, 10, that this, this began. Um, and that was just a small market garden on nine acres with a view to feeding about 150 families. And of course, a city like Norwich, which is, if you look on the map, it's, it's, it's very much the central hub for the whole of Norfolk, but also for um, you know, bits of Suffolk and Lincolnshire and Cambridgeshire. And at one point, Norwich would have had a ring of market gardens around it, feeding, feeding restaurants, feeding households and supplying the market. But, but of course, that's almost completely gone now because of the way supply chains work. And the fact that most of our fresh produce either comes from the very big production areas in Lincolnshire or is coming from Spain, perhaps, or Portugal or Southern Europe. And so all of that horticulture is gone. And we wanted to just demonstrate what that might look like. And we also worked with a baker and established a mill in the city. Norwich had no milling capacity left. It, it would once have had a lot and it would have had a, a real connection between those arable fields and the um, and the city itself, but that's all gone. So we, we, we placed a very small mill with a baker and demonstrated that you could, you could take grain from the edge of the city and mill, a Nor and mill and make a Norwich loaf. And the final part of the project, and the bit that we really put off because it seemed the most uh, complicated and difficult thing to do was the beans and encouraging people to eat more beans and to see if farmers would be willing to grow more beans uh, in our part of Norfolk. And what we really quickly realised was that actually there were already lots of pulses being grown. Uh, peas and, and beans called uh, field beans or fava beans, which, um, which we don't eat really. We feed them to livestock um, or they are exported for human consumption in North Africa and the Middle East and in other countries. And we began to think, well, hang on a minute, rather than encouraging farmers to grow something different like chickpeas that they're not already growing how about we we see if people in Norwich would be prepared to eat these beans that are already being grown and that's really where it started we bought a ton and we packed it up at William's kitchen table into um, compostable bags and we put a little postcard in postage paid which asked people what they thought of the beans in the pack what they did with them whether they'd buy them did they know about them and the response was absolutely overwhelming. The, these postcards started to, to flood back in and, and people were amazed that here was this crop growing around the edge of the city that they just never heard of before and certainly never eaten. Um, they wanted to know why that was. And it was a, it was a question we were really fascinated by. And um, the, the sort of the Norwich project, the, the Great British Bean Project, which was, was part of that 
that work that we were doing for uh, Transition City Norwich came to an end. And um, we were just, by that point, we were hooked on beams. We were just fascinated by them, fascinated by the co- cultural and social history, by the, by the, the sort of the economic and, and industrial and social change that happened 400 years ago that stopped us eating them because they became stigmatized as poor people's food. This realization that in the UK, from, from being very conservative about our dietary choices and the recipes we enjoy cooking, we'd become incredibly cosmopolitan in the space of 30 years. And suddenly recipes from you know, North Africa and the Middle East, you know, Ottolenghi, people like that, were really, really fashionable. And here was an ingredient that we can grow brilliantly here. You know, we have the perfect conditions. We export it to those countries and yet we're not eating it. Um, and that's really that's really the starting point. And we started with just the beans split and hold and some very traditional peas, marrow fat peas, uh, which again, they're an echo of that peasant diet that we would once have enjoyed um, of, of, a, of a pottage. And then that, that kind of remains with fish and chips and yet, which are delicious, who doesn't like mushy peas? But um, I think there are all sorts of other ways that those peas could be used. And we also wanted to revive uh, a brown pea, a traditional field pea called a carlin pea or a black badger, which is still eaten in parts of the Northwest and in the Midlands, um, but it's not widely known. And it's this sort of British equivalent to a, to a chickpea. It's got a fantastic chestnutty flavor and a lovely firm texture. Anyway, so we launched these, these four products. Um, we began to sort of get them out to, to chefs and to, to home cooks and to food writers to try and create a narrative around them to encourage people to see these British grown ingredients as, you know, as a fantastic and overlooked um, opportunity of food stuff. And um, having started at that point, we, we began to realise that we could engage directly with farmers and ask them to grow specific varieties in very particular ways. So we began working with organic farmers. There was no previously no organic um, market for, for peas, for human consumption or for beans. So we began doing that as a, as a starting point. And it also became clear that we could add other crops. We could start thinking about the whole rotation. How can we create a diverse rotation that puts back in the soil as it takes away and, and begins the, you know, the creation of what, what you might think of as an agroecological food system where, where we think about um, the economic, but also the ecological return to the farm. <clears throat> and we got really excited by that. And really it was, it was in, I think it was 2017 that um, we were nominated for best producer in the BBC Food and Farming Awards, which, um, which we won. We were absolutely, we were delighted. And I think a big part of that was the judges' recognition that not only were these fantastic quality um, foods, but that, you know, we were, we were doing something that wasn't being done and that was potentially really, really important around farming change and the impact of the food system. So, um, so that's really uh, where we came from. Um, the name Hotmadod is um, a bit like a lot of the pulses and the grains that we're working with. They're kind of forgotten and overlooked. And a lot of the dialect words in East Anglia are, are much the same. Um, in fact, a lot of people probably wouldn't be, even be aware that there are sort of dialect words in East Anglia. But Hobmadod is one of those. And it means, um, mostly it means hedgehog, but it also means snail. Uh, it sometimes means uh, an ammonite or a, a hailstone. It's essentially a small sort of curled up thing, which seemed incredibly appropriate for our small curled up seeds that are 
kind of bursting with life uh, and, and promise. So because we're all East Anglian, we wanted to revive this wonderful word along with the wonderful crops that we're encouraging farmers to grow and people to eat. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so as you said, you supply a lot of sustainable restaurants. So how does Hodmy Dodd inspire or contribute to sustainability in the hospitality sector? Well, it's as you as you're probably very well aware, it's actually it's actually quite difficult because these are very busy people who are engaged with a with a very sort of time pressured day to day. You know, they're 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 thinking about the, the service, the, the the ingredients they need, and how they're going to get them. Um, and I think we're selling often quite challenging products because they they might need to be soaked. Uh, and there's some preparation to be done. Um, so really, we've we've engaged with with chefs very very directly. We found that's the the best way to do things to to have conversations with them, to introduce them to the ingredients, and to tell the story and to connect them not necessarily directly, but certainly through the narrative around the crop with the farmer as well. And I think it's really important to have that connection. It's very important for our farmers. They they absolutely love seeing the crops that they've grown on plates in London or in the Southwest or in Bristol or in Birmingham or wherever. They really enjoy that. And it doesn't often happen with, with what are broadly called combinable crops, those arable crops that are harvested with a combine harvester uh, in August or September. Uh, they're normally very anonymous. They're, they're, they're commodities, they're traded anonymously, and one very rarely knows beyond a country of origin. And even that can be very sketchy. You don't really know where they're from. So being able to make that direct link is a very powerful thing. And I think increasingly chefs are looking for that. They're looking to understand provenance and where meat and fresh produce, dairy, uh, vegetables, there is, a, there is a very clear understanding that it's, it's great to, to have that connection back. But often... The, the carbohydrate on the plate, whether it's whether it's rice uh, or quinoa, uh, and then the the kind of complex protein carb mixes, things like the pulses, they have they have no traceability at all. They could be from China, they could be from Canada, and encouraging um, you know chefs and cooks to start thinking about where those ingredients might have come from and how they might play just as important and significant role in the dish as the meat or the fresh veg. I think that's that's something that we've we've really kind of tapped into. And we've had some fantastic support as well. Um, and, and I think that's really, really, really helped us. So people like um, Tom Hunt, for example, um, has, been, has been a big advocate and that's been, that's been brilliant because other chefs are looking to him for sort of those sustainability messages. Hugh Fernie Whittingstall, right from the beginning, he and his chefs at River Cottage really engaged with what we're doing and kind of saw that it was, it was significant and, and important and, um, and they've kind of helped us. And, and I think the whole struggle around creating a narrative for, an, for a, a, a food that people are simply not familiar with and doesn't exist in recipe books is, is quite a struggle. You have to sort of say, well, as, I, as you heard me say earlier, a carlin pea is a bit like a chickpea. You have to make a kind of an association. Um, and then once people have overcome that, then, um, yeah, they're really happy to use them. Amazing. Yeah. So, so yeah, like you say, these chefs are very interested in using them. How, how sort of hesitant are they to start with, you know, to start using these indigenous pulses that you're so interested in? Are they hesitant to use them? Or like you say, are they just looking to the more sort of coveted chefs to try it first? 
I think I think there is a lot of that. There's a lot of um, people looking over the fence and what other people are doing, and and you know Instagram is amazing for that. And and people are people are very kind of inspired by what their what their peers are doing in their in in, in kitchens all over the country. Um, and I think uh, increasingly, I mean, as as you know, we've seen when we started and we started to talk about diets that were you know that, that were higher in in pulse crops and lower in in meat that was seen as quite a radical thing it seems crazy now but that was seen as quite um, far out whereas now i think that's much more widely accepted and and balancing plates very differently and looking for those interesting pulses has become something that i think all all chefs are, are doing really um and um responding to the the sort of demand for the plant-based options on the menu, whether that's vegan or not, I don't know. But, you know, there is there is definitely that happening. Yeah. Would you actually say that the plant-based sort of movement is helping us go back to that, as you described it, as the peasant diet, you know, getting more pulses and grains in? Would you say the, the plant-based movement has helped that? It certainly helped us to, um, as you, you know, pulses have a, a rather kind of um, sort of, reputation for being a sort of whole foody niche a sort of 70s idea perhaps and I think what's happened with this kind of rise in plant-based eating is there are a lot of you know fantastic recipes from all over the world that people are experimenting with you know that are colorful or that are full of flavor um, and um, and I think that's really helped us a lot um, and I think you know there's the headline stories about the rise of veganism and there you know that is a significant it is significant, but it's a tiny percentage of the population. I think there's a much bigger chunk of the population, and, I th- and some of the numbers are, are quite staggering as to what percentage of the population that is, who are looking to maybe reduce meat consumption or make more active choices about where their meat is coming from and looking for alternatives as well. So, you know, that whole idea that if you do eat meat, you might eat a smaller quantity, but use other ingredients with it to kind of stretch it and... and um, you know, um, use the use it more as a flavouring than as as the main um, part of the meal. Amazing, yeah. Well, finally, um, where can our listeners find out more about Hobmidod? Uh, purchase your pulses and grains if they are restaurateurs, and get in touch. Uh, yes, I mean from from a restaurant point of view, it's it's really straightforward. They can call us, they can email us, they can visit our website, um, which we we have quite a unique name. We're quite easy to find. Uh, we do work with wholesale distributors as well. Um, so into the independent trade. So in the Southwest, it would people be like Le Chasse, but also uh, Central Trading. Uh, and then we work with people like, like Suma and things. Um, but yeah, buying direct is, is really straightforward. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for telling us all about your indigenous uh, pulses and your different way of thinking when it comes to everything (laughs) uh, on pulses. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. No problem. Thank you. Thanks for thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Zero Waste Code podcast brought to you by Green Code. If you'd like to find out more about us, then head to greencode.net where you'll find all of our social medias and can sign up to our newsletter. See you in the next episode.